Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey folks, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years. This week, we're going to rerun an episode that first ran in July of 2012 called Live at the Story Studio. The Story Studio is our sister company. It is at thestorystudio.org. 
Org. Now, this is the very earliest days of our teaching storytelling workshops. And JC, who is the business director of Risk, uh, just happened to be taking one of those early classes. And she's one of the two students who shared a story at this particular class show that you're going to hear in this episode. Now, the Story Studio has grown tremendously since this episode was recorded in 2012. One of the biggest ways we've changed is all of the corporate workshops we've done at Google, Pfizer, American Express, USA Today, Citibank. The list goes on and on. Maybe the list could include your business next year. Remember, we're at thestorystudio.org. But we still have the most phenomenal faculty for teaching personal storytelling as well. So here it is. Without further ado, this goes back to 2012, an episode we call Live at the Story Studio. Kids, this is Extra Risk, where we give you just a little bit more of the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Sense behind me now. That's C-E-N-T-Z. We're calling today's show live from the Story Studio. That, of course, is our school that you can find at thestorystudio.org. Anyone in New York who takes our nine-week course... Uh, that course ends with a class show that you do for friends and family. And we thought we would feature two from our last class show. You know, because the Story Studio came from Risk and because so many people come to the Story Studio because of Risk, the nature of the self-expression in these classes just gets more substantial. You know, at first... The rush that people get from doing this is you know, pretty similar to what any performer feels like. Wow, okay, people are paying attention to me. I am expressing myself. It's exciting. But some students begin to realize over time that it's bigger than that. Weeks after a course has ended, I'll hear from students who say, holy crap, uh, a friend of mine took on a new job because they were inspired by my story. Or, oh my gosh, a family member of mine like gave up an old bad habit after they heard my story. These students come around to realizing they've had an effect. They made someone want to do something. By sharing their experience, they uh, kick-started 
an experience for someone else. I've been through it in my own life, and now I'm witnessing it happening in so many of my students' lives. It gets bigger. It gets bigger than you at first imagined. So our first story here from the last Story Studio class show comes from Diana. We call this story, The One You Don't See. All right. Good evening. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was in this really hot, sweaty room um, with a bunch of alcoholics called AA. It was a party. And I'm listening to... <laughs> so there's no drinking, but um, you got all these alcoholics. You could tell, like... 20, 30 years ago, they used to be a Studio 54. And then you got young people that, you know, they're drinking so recent that it's not glamorous or sexy. They're just drunks. And they're all dancing together. So I'm sitting here at this hot party with old pizza, nasty salad. Like, how in the hell am I in here at an AA party listening to Amy Winehouse? Um, and there's a reason. Um, I'm an alcoholic. So <laughs> that is why I am in a nasty, sweaty room with alcoholics listening to Amy Winehouse. And so um, I earned my spot in the room, um, legitimately. Um, but it's, it's just this weird thing because I wasn't like the party type. You know, I could tell there were people there who used to really mix it up and they needed to come to this party. So they had this alternative. And that just wasn't my story. I'd never been in the parties, almost fell asleep there, almost used to fall asleep in clubs. It just wasn't my thing. So I was the kind of alcoholic, I was like a lady. You know, I'd go out to like happy hours and then I'd stop at home and have a happier hour afterwards. So people just didn't know, you know, because I would, you know, have wine, go to the wine bar, I had a car to the wine bar, so I got discounts. Um, and it was real fancy, it was real nice. Um, but then, I started getting stressed out. I got a promotion, broke up with someone, then broke up with someone else three months later, and then my grandmother died, then my mom had breast cancer, and then four months later my dad had brain surgery. And all this happened really quickly. And so the stress just started mounting and building. So I would go home and go to the gourmet store and get some salmon and some capers and some wine, and I would relieve you know, my tension. And then over the course of months, and then it turned into like two or three years, it ended up with two buck chucks from Trader Joe's, you know, $3 wine, um, which I would buy four at a time um, because I was trying to let the people at the counter know that I was having a party. All this wine was not for me. So I would buy a rosé and then a red and a white so all my different friends could have different wine for this big pasta party I was having. The only problem was I would only get individual sized pastas for like <laughs> $2.99. So they probably didn't think like she's gonna serve, you know, her 10 friends this $2.99 microwave pasta. So it just, you know, you start playing tricks on yourself when you're hiding your alcoholism. And so I didn't look much different than this. I went to work every day and people were oh, hi, hi, you're doing good. And you know, you look nice today. And the thing about it was I knew that stuff was just not right. Um, and it just got to the point where over several months, these little indignities started building up and started happening. So one, my parents don't drink, and I would go out to Texas to visit my family, and none of them drink. 
And I didn't drink when I was there, so my hands would start shaking. I was having physical withdrawal. And so I'd be putting batteries in like the flip camera and my sister's like, girl, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, oh, it's just small, you know. And I'm like, oh shit, they know, you know. So I was starting to get paranoid. And then, you know, a couple months more would pass and just little things kept adding up. And one was a part of my little classy thing was I used to hang out with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I lived back in Chicago. We came to Carnegie Hall and of course I drank a lot of wine with them. Found out after I got sober, I didn't like them. I just liked the wine, so. <laughs> you won't see me at Carnegie Hall anymore. But, <laughs> so, you know, we came to Carnegie, we went back hall, backstage and did all this. And the next day, you know, I went to the airport to leave town after having this glorious weekend. And I went to the bar and the lady was like, you like a lot? Mm -hmm, yeah, so she's like giving me one part Diet Coke to like five parts Malibu, you know, it's like barely any Coke in it. So I'm just drinking these drinks. I probably had two or three before I get on the plane. Then I get on the plane and I'm alcoholic, so I drink some more. I'm like, ooh, time for wine. I get back to Chicago, get to O'Hare, everything's good. I had some new luggage because I had to come to New York with my little luggage and I roll it out and then I'm like, shit, I gotta pee. You know, I really have to go. But I'm not taking my luggage into the bathroom. <laughs> So I get in the cab, I, ha I head back downtown where I live, and I'm like, Sunday night, and the stores are about to close, stop at the store, the cab driver stops so I can go get some wine. So I go in the gourmet market where all this stuff got started, and I know they have a pretty decent bathroom, but I, he's ready to go home, so I'm rushing through, rushing through to get my wine. I don't know right where to go to get it, and I'm getting it cold, because I know what's going to happen in a few minutes. Get back in the car, I really gotta go to the bathroom. Get to my apartment, which is like two or three blocks away. And I'm rolling through, go through the glass door, wave at the door person, they open the doors for me, get to the elevator, some folks get off, I get on, and then it happened. I like pissed on myself in the corner, in the elevator where I live, with cameras. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I have on my new long puffy coat, my riding boots, and a wool dress. This is not a good look. Oh, and the tights too. It was January. And so I get inside, and I'm like, I can't even tell my mom about this. This is some mess, you know. But I'm still kind of tipsy, and I'm embarrassed, and I'm thinking they're going to see this. So I call down to the front desk, and I'm like, hi, I kind of had a mistake. She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I urinated on the elevator. And they're like, oh. Then I'm like, why the hell did I tell them? <laughs> and so it was, again, I'm the kind of alcoholic that people just didn't kind of know about. So a day or two later, I'm coming back from work, and I'm going through the lobby, and I'm thinking, oh, this lady is going to just think I am the biggest drunk clown fool ever. And so I walked by, I'm like, hi. She said, girl, let me tell you, I, I peed on myself the other day, too. She was like, I just cried. She said, I had to go to the bathroom, and nobody was here to take over the desk. And I'm like, I pissed on myself, and still nobody knows what the hell is going on. And so, like, I would not make that up. nothing I could do to like give this away and so if you go to AA and you hear all these stories and stuff you know you got people to crash cars and do all this stuff and that's really not a part of my story um, a lot of that stuff but um, they also talk about yet's like you know you're here you're sitting in this chair you haven't died yet you haven't been some people haven't institutionalized yet and 
all these other things. But I'm a person who ended up having a lot of yets. You know, I hadn't hit anybody in the car yet. I hadn't ended up on the street. I hadn't lost my job yet, yet, yet. And I knew that those things were going to be coming. Um, and it's dangerous. I was single. I was living home. So I was hanging out in the street and I was going home and in this very depressed, awful state. So what people didn't see was, yeah, I was, I was going to work, going home. I had dozens, a hundred or so wine bottles in my house because when you drink and you try to throw it down a chute, that makes a lot of noise. So it's embarrassing because your garbage sounds like glass at that point. Um, I would wake up with these weird scratches. I'm like, what the hell is going on? Well, I had been on my sofa for three months because my apartment was such a wreck. So I ended up going to treatment, but three months before then, I just slept on my sofa. So I would drink wine and go to sleep and pass out with my corkscrew next to me. And it was scratching me in the middle of the night. So I'm like, get screwed, but not in a good way. And, um, <laughs> and so um, it, it just, it was ugly. It was real ugly. By the time I decided to go to treatment, I had like one light bulb bomb in my apartment. Like it was just a wreck. And again, that was something nobody saw. And later I realized how dangerous it was because nobody said, you know, well, you have a problem. Ooh, we need to tech on this. And I could have basically killed myself without anybody knowing, you know, there is some level of like pride, like, okay, nobody knew. But at the same time, it was very, very dangerous because I was an alcoholic that people don't see. And um, so at one point I had a horrible job that was stressing me out and I got this fabulous interview and I went. And um, the night before, I couldn't not drink. I couldn't, I just couldn't go that night without drinking before the interview. And I went and I did a great job and the people followed up and I was supposed to follow up. And I just didn't, you know, because I knew that if I took this new position, it would have been higher up in the organization and I would have been exposed at some point. I would have ruined my career. And so at that point, I realized other people trusted me. They were impressed with me, but... I didn't trust me and I wasn't impressed with me anymore. My confidence was shaken at that point and I couldn't even have what I wanted and this was getting in the way. Um, so after a few of these things, I decided, okay, I need to go to treatment. And so I went in the place and I said, you know, I got this problem. I said, let me look at your hands. Let me take your blood pressure. You look fine, which was still the common <laughs> thread. Like you look fine. And I talked to the woman, and after a while, she's like, oh, I have something for you. So I went to the Resurrection Behavioral Health Professionals Program. So it was doctors and nurses and lawyers and people with licensing problems. And even when I went there, they were like, you look fine. And I took pictures of my apartment. I was like, see? And they were like, oh, you know, you have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> you get three groups for the price of one. So I got to go to three groups. Um, <laughs> and even then, the women, I had roommates, and we lived in this independent living community, which was a condo building. They were like, you are full of shit. You got these people fooled, you know, whatever. Because when I got to treatment, I had this little cute wool hat and my little jacket and some jeans and my riding boots. You know, I went, like, really cute, like these stupid people on Celebrity Rehab. <laughs> I just was, I had that same luggage. Um, and it was full, and every day I matched and did my thing or whatever. Um, I don't know. But, you know, even throughout that process, it's one of those things where I had to tell people, look, I'm going to go to, I'm going to rehab. And my mom, they had never seen me drink. They live in Texas, and they didn't know this about me. I didn't drink in high school and all that. And 
she was like, what do you mean? And the night before I left, I was like, you know, I, I'm defeated. She's like, don't say that. And I'm like, I, you know, this, this kicked my ass. It really has. And um, it, it was that defeat and admitting for myself that really changed my life. Um, and so now, yes, I may not have appeared to be an alcoholic. I'll tell people to this day and they don't believe me. They're like, oh, no, no, no. Your story <laughs> is, is really, you're not a real alcoholic. But if I go to AA and I see someone with no teeth or that used to live on the street or, you know, also had other addictions and problems, I relate fully to those people. And so the thing is, alcoholism is not about where you end up, whether it be on the ground or in the grave or in jail. And it's not about how you look. It's an inside job. And so um, through this process, I realized that I had to fix what was inside and not worry about as much as what was outside. Because I used to say, how do you want me to look? And when I was in treatment one day, because I'm like, you want me to crawl on the ground and look like this and look like that? And they said, your insides are supposed to match your outsides. I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I put more than two years now, I've been sober, and I've been putting a lot of work on the inside. So um, again, people may not see that part of it either, but um, I'm living a healthier, happier, whole, more whole life because of the process. So thank you. <laughs> Okay, our next storyteller is J.C. Cassis. So in my senior year of college, uh, second semester, beginning of second semester, I had still never had a relationship with a guy, like a meaningful relationship. And uh, I was definitely insecure about it. It was like a point of like pain in my life where I was like, why don't I get this experience that it seems like everybody else has? And I was stressed out about it. And part of it is that I definitely have like pretty unattainable standards. <laughs> and uh, that is a big part of it. I acknowledge it. And, um, but I was in beginning acting class, second semester, senior year. And one day in walks Jay. And Jay is everything I've ever wanted. He's like tall and cute and, you know, dynamic and funny and smart and interesting. And we quickly became really close friends. And uh, it was a friendship unlike any I had ever known. It was just incredibly close. We talked about topics that we didn't talk about with anybody else, like religion and spirituality and sexuality and how those things intertwined and caused us no end of confusion and heartache. <laughs> and, he, you know, I love people that can laugh at themselves. And he was from the wilderness of Texas and uh, actually grew up on a like religious home for neglected and abused kids that his family ran and they were super Christian and stuff and yet he could still sort of step back outside of himself and make fun of you know where he came from and, and we would joke about things and he would impersonate like a you know backwoods Texas dude uh, cowboy whatever and be like you know Are you making fun of Jesus you know like, <laughs> and that was like one of our friends was making fun of Jesus you know and we'd always joke about that um, and uh, so it was just it was it was amazing to me because he was everything I wanted and we liked each other so much as people but there was an element to this friendship that was 
endlessly problematic for the two of us, but more for me, uh, which was that there were lots of things that happened in it that really resembled like a love romantic relationship, and yet he never wanted to take it there. For example, one night he came over to my dorm room and he ended up spending the night there in my bed with me, cuddling. Not friend behavior, romantic behavior, <laughs> and yet no relationship. Um, and so, but we're lying there in bed and I, because of instances like this, I would always think like maybe there's a chance, maybe something is growing here, like maybe it's just weird, but like one day it'll sort of click. And we're lying there cuddling and it's like the best feeling because, you know, I'm there with him and I'm, you know, my head's laying on his chest and I've got my arm around him and I'm just sort of listening to his heartbeat and just feeling this wonderful feeling of like, I finally, I'm finally getting to experience that thing that everybody else has, which is, you know, romantic love with somebody you're excited about. We've all had that, right? Every single last one of us. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so I'm lying there, everything's great. And we're talking and all of a sudden he goes, JC, I have to tell you something. And... Something about the tone of his voice makes my heart just drop. And I know it's not going to be something that I'm going to want to hear. And he goes, you know our friend Sarah that's in the play with us? We were in a play together. I said, yeah. And he said, I really like her. And I think she really likes me. And I, you know, we've been hanging out a lot and having a great time. And I really want to pursue a relationship with her. And I'm really excited about this. And I felt so bad in that moment. I was like, I don't know why this is happening, why you're telling me this now, why you're lying in my bed (laughs) when you're saying that you want to be with her, maybe a smart thing to do would be to do this with her. (laughs) So... Like, I was feeling awful, and I just, I was shocked, and this was the, even though I knew that he had sort of not been on the same page with me of wanting to get in a relationship, this was the first time where it was just like, it's not happening, and nothing in this friendship is ever going to make sense. So I just sort of took my arm off him and just rolled over to my other side, and, you know, I could feel the tears welling up in my eyes, and my throat was just starting to ache and, and clench up. And I started crying and he, you know, even in the dark, he knew that I was just miserable. And, you know, he was reaching out and and patting my back and was just like, I'm sorry that this is the way I feel. And that didn't help. (laughs) It's like, stop feeling that way. (laughs) But anyway, so that, that kind of episode happened again and again and again throughout the rest of that semester where... It seemed like he would start liking a girl, start going out with her. For some reason, it wouldn't work out. And there'd be a blissful few weeks where I would go back to thinking, like, maybe it's possible. Like, it didn't work out with that bitch. It's going to be me. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. <laughs> so so I, would, I would get, like, these, like, extreme highs of, like, maybe it's going to happen. And then, like, these horrible lows of, like, here I am again, being, like, stupid and wasting my time and just completely disillusioned. The end of senior year came around, and through all of this roller coaster, we remained incredibly close friends and had so many laughs and so many great times amidst all the misery. I couldn't bear the thought of going back to New York and being away from him, you know, the next year. And so I planned to go visit him in Texas a couple weeks after graduation. When I went down there, he said, you know, I'm so glad to have you here. This is so awesome. I want to show you everything that I grew up with. And I want to show you my favorite place in the whole world, which is this creek that leads into a cave about an hour from my house. He's not going to murder me, don't worry. (laughs) He's not going to murder me. (laughs) Uh, It's different in Texas. Uh, So we drove out uh, to this creek, 
And when we got there, he was totally right. It was the most beautiful place I'd ever seen. And, you know, the the sun was dappling down through thousands of green leaves. And we were surrounded by these really high embankments. And it was just us there. There was just nobody around for miles. And it was warm enough and the water was the perfect temperature. And we decided to, like, walk in the river to the cave. This was just the most wonderful setting and the most wonderful moment. And we were on we were on a high point. So I was just very happy and everything was perfect. And we were walking through this this water and, you know, I I at the time I was like pretty uncomfortable with, you know, my my body and like the idea of being naked and especially being naked in front of other people and whatever. But the setting was just so wonderful and perfect and I love swimming and I don't know if you've ever swam naked. It's fucking great. Um, so I was like, I was like, I want to take off some clothes. Um, so I took off my shirt and I was just in like my bra and shorts and sneakers and whatever. And jo- uh, Jay was uh, walking ahead, and w- I'm glad that's hilarious to you. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you're not the one either. Um, no, but <laughs> so, so we're walking through the river, and um, and uh, Jay gets out of the river, and he's walking along the bank uh, about 30 feet ahead of me, and I was like, I w- I just got this weird idea in my head to just like let it all out, you know, in a way. And like, I had, you know, I had articulated to him many times with words, like, that I really, okay, fine, I'm probably gonna cry, that I really liked him and I wanted to be with him or whatever. And like, that hadn't worked. And at the time, I didn't know, like, anything about how to deal with guys. I still don't, but at least, like, things have changed a little bit. So I was like, I was like, I just want to like show my whole self to him. And, you know, because of the setting, because of, you know, it was just the two of us in this wonderful place. I just felt, even though I'd never felt comfortable with the idea of like basically anybody seeing me naked at that point and nobody ever had, I just felt like this is the time and place and the person where I can just, you know, not have any walls up. And so he was walking ahead of me with his back to me and I just slipped off my clothes under the water and I get out and, you know, I'm dripping wet and I, it's just me and I'm wearing my uh, dark green sparkly camouflage kangaroo sneakers. <laughs> like I said, I didn't know anything about seduction. <laughs> so I get out and I'm standing there naked. And even though I know that this is like a big risky moment and I don't know what's going to happen, I just wanted him to see me. And so I just said, Jay. And he turned around and he saw me. And it was such a crazy moment for both of us because nobody had ever seen me like that. And it just, as soon as he turned around, I was like, this was the wrong thing to do because he immediately was just like, JC. And then he turned around and he just sort of covered his face and he was so embarrassed and so like taken aback by it. Cause I'd never done anything like that before, of course. And it also, you know, for me, it was like putting my whole self out there and just it, like saying in my own way, like, I want you to know, like everything about me and accept it, you know, and love me. And I want to love you the same way. And I want you to be able to do that with me. And to him, it was like this offensive 
like almost like a trap. Like I had like forced him to look at a naked woman that he wasn't in a romantic relationship with, which was like not okay for him. And like he had like now been like violated, which was not my intention at all. And in that moment, I just felt like I had put everything out there and it was just never going to be good enough for him. It was never going to be what he wanted. It was just not going to happen between us. And as painful as that was, for the next like two years, we had the same thing of like super crazy highs. I've never related to anybody like this you know, before in my life and like devastating lows of like I've never been so hurt in my life. And after two years, I just said to him, I can't do this anymore. I can't, we have to, I can't talk to you anymore. This is done until further notice. And it's been four, four years, actually a few weeks ago, four years, and I still haven't talked to him ever. And as painful as that was, it taught me one of the most like important lessons ever, which I wish it hadn't taken me so fucking long to learn, but now I know it. Which is, which is I should never waste that kind of time on any guy who doesn't love me the way I love me. Because I fucking love me. Sorry, bitch. <laughs> for this week folks uh, this is release the sunbird behind me now and that last story was not just from a student of the story studio but from a very dear friend of mine the fabulous miss jc cassis with a story we call the reveal don't forget that we also do corporate workshops through the storystudio.org uh, you can learn all about it. storytelling in the form of brand biographies or vision-to-action stories. And, of course, the kinds of personal anecdotes that you might use in your day-to-day business interactions. Also, if you don't live in New York, we teach online as well, one-on-one over Skype, and we're soon to be offering complete workshops where multiple students are on webcams at the same time getting the same amount of feedback that you would get in our workshops in person in New York. So if you're wondering if you should jump in at thestorystudio.org, I say today's the day, folks. Take a risk.
how in the hell am I in here at an AA party listening to Amy Winehouse? Um, and there's a reason. Um, I'm an alcoholic. So... <laughs>